0: Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. This episode is part two of host Stacey LeBaron's interview with Heather Camisa and Tara Sanucci of St. Hubert's Animal Welfare Center. If you missed part one, check out episode 159. Now on with the interview.
1: Let's talk about cat behavior and some of the challenges that you have faced at St. Hubert's with various cases that you've had. Uh, You've been dealing with cat behavior with the pet helpline, but then you also were dealing with it, I'm assuming, within the sheltering system also. So maybe if you could touch upon some of the components of that.
0: Sure. So, uh, you know, in the shelter, we, you know, again, touching on the prevention aspect We do a lot of enrichment designed to keep the cats mentally stimulated and happy. So making sure that they all have things to do, they're all getting the attention that they need, you know, whether that's 10 minutes of play here and there, whether that's 20 minutes of play, whether it's just interacting with people in a different way with some of the shy and fearful cats. Um, We try to address any issues before they become issues and certainly let all adopters know that we're here for them. And this is our helpline is a free service and we'll talk to them whenever we can about whatever we need. And some of the calls are fairly quick, meaning they can be resolved within a week or two. Not all of them are so easily resolved. Certainly the common litter box issues. You know, we've had a couple of cases where, yes, it's, there's been a a quick change in litter or they move the litter box and you can change the litter back and everything is great and they're happy and they'll let you know if they need anything in the future. But then there are those calls again, that, you know, really kind of getting to the heart of things and building that trust with the family that's calling. You don't get all of the information initially on that first call but it's a good building block. Just really that support is what can really help and letting people know that there are things that they can do as opposed to, you know, the old adage of, oh, he's just a cat. He's doing this for this reason. There's research, there's behavior behind this as far as why he's doing this. And if we get to that issue, we can help in that
2: case. Well, that's one of the things I think Tara does really well is she figures, she she asks a lot of questions to also gauge how much someone's gonna be able to do. Because it's senseless to put out all of this advice and all of these steps if you have someone who's not gonna be willing or able to do them all. And with that in mind then, there's some people she can go through steps and they're just gonna take every single one of them and do everything she says. And then in other cases, you break it down. And we started off this helpline using um, a simple Excel spreadsheet. And it became very difficult to do the follow-up phone call tracking. And I'm a big statistics person, having been an economist, and I always want to know our resolution rates and um, other data from the helpline. And it became a challenge. So over time, and this shouldn't discourage any shelter or rescue from opening up a helpline, but over time, we did get a case management software. We wrote a grant so that we could better enter notes. Uh, we have a few people that answer phone calls and we wanted to make sure that we were really consistently following up with people and delivering information.
1: That case management sounds very exciting. Actually, That, that software just sounds, uh, sounds like something that a lot of organizations would really be, uh, excited with. I mean, 20 years ago, I can remember all the different telephone message pads that we had. And we were always so incredibly dependent on the carbon copy because you'd have the little piece of paper in your pocket with like the phone number of the person that needs assistance. And you you call them back and you leave a message on the answering machine and you want to be able to follow up. And back in those days, you're starting out with an Excel spreadsheet, but that doesn't have a boomerang feature or something where you have a trigger that gives you automatic callback or just trying to think of like a project management software package, like an Asana maybe or a Trello that are free products, maybe that groups could try to use that as a way to do case management if they don't have funds to have a custom package.
2: Even an access database, if they have a, a volunteer who knows any sort of relational database that could help them set something up. And like you're saying, Stacey, there's now all these freeware options too. Because it, it, it does. You need the ticklers. You, all of a sudden you've built up all these cases outstanding and staying on top of that is a challenge. And the last thing we want to do is drop somebody.
1: Right. Well, and then once if you have all the information all put together and then say somebody reports a cat hit by car or something urgent, you can actually pull out anybody who's contacted you from that area and utilize them as a resource in that local area. So Heather, I wanted to ask you some big picture questions about animal welfare in general and New Jersey over the last 16, 17 years. How have things changed for you with regards to animal welfare and your knowledge of how life is like for community cats in New Jersey?
2: Yeah, Stacey, things are so much better than they were 15 years ago. After Hurricane Katrina, I worked with a lot of shelters in the Deep South, 57 of them in Louisiana and Mississippi, and drove all around these states and would meet with people. What was this, you know, 10 years ago, let's say, and they would grab my arm in some very rural parts and they would say, you know, is it true y'all don't have puppies in the North? Because they had heard about these transport programs and they couldn't believe, imagine a world where there weren't just the most beautiful puppies run after run after run. And they had to make, you know, these horrible decisions because they were overcrowded and there was such a lack of infrastructure in their areas. And one shelter, I mean, they truly grabbed my arm and they said, we thought it must be laboratories trying to get our animals because we just can't imagine. That there's a world that isn't overwhelmed with dogs and puppies, and I, I was great. I could tell them, you know, it's true, and we've gotten the dog population under control in the in the Northeast, and that's why we're able to help. And we talked about how to find good partners, and it was it was wonderful to share that with them. Well, fast forward to about two and a half, three years ago, and I'm at a meeting of shelters, and there was no other representative from the Mid Atlantic. I had heard that these shelters up in New England were starting to have a need for cats, that they had a a capacity to help other states with cats. And so I immediately said, I want to go sit with those New England shelters. And I instantly was that woman from the South. I I grabbed their arms and I said, is it true y'all don't have kittens up in the North? I couldn't believe the day had come where, thanks to all the great work of groups up in New England and, and TNR, you know, started out in Massachusetts, that they gotten to a point where they could help other states with cats. So not only looking at our own statistics in New Jersey, where, you know, we've been tracking uh, shelter intake stats, and it's not perfect, um, but we've been doing it since 1984. And last year in New Jersey, we took in fewer animals in our sheltering system than were euthanized in 1987. Um, And the numbers are dropping rapidly every year. Our intake in euthanasia in New Jersey is a fraction of the national average. And all these numbers are going the right direction. I mean, in the 70s, people forget this, but in the 70s, the estimates were 20 to 30 million dogs and cats euthanized in this country. And now we're down to, you know, estimates vary between 2.7 and 3.4. And my gosh, we all want those numbers to be down to the lowest they can be for just mercy euthanasias. But we have made tremendous progress. And the momentum is high. We have spay neuter clinics everywhere, we've got such a level of professionalization. I am so optimistic about how quickly we're getting to where there's going to be the end of euthanasia of healthy and treatable companion animals in this country. Where we are now is twofold. One, it's a bigger logistics issue, meaning we have areas now that have gotten are so far ahead. It's almost like the rich and the poor. We have areas so far ahead and we have areas left behind. And how do we, in a productive, meaningful way, bridge that gap? And really, it's To me, building relationships between organizations and creating what we call here sister shelter relationships. So, when we take in animals from another area, you know, that's not enough for us. We invest back in those areas. So, whether we send these folks to professional education conferences, We send back funds from every dog that comes to us from another shelter to help them fund low-cost spay-neuter for the public in their area. All sorts of ways. We try to lend a hands-up and we're helping to build a network of shelters all across the the East Coast right now. And if we could just expand that, but that takes a lot of collaboration, relationship building, and that's what we need to work on. And, And of course, you know, advancing trap neuter and return um, programs and you know in New Jersey we have nothing on a state level that really gives us the green light for um, trap neuter return programs we certainly have been working on trying to build consistency across our state and doing it well um, every time we have it done poorly in one area right that comes back to programs that are running well but we have now achieved that, tipping point number of municipalities that are doing trap neuter return we've educated the public i will tell you my favorite check i sign the checks every week here when i sign cuz we have partner vets who accept our vouchers and you know people love these cats you know they always have names that kind of describe what they look like. You know, Smokey is the gray cat. You know, Oreo is the black and white. You know, you know, Felix is the black and white and Morris is the orange. I smile when it's Mama Cat. I'm very happy to sign the check that Mama Cat got fixed. And I have to share with you and your listeners, I mean, people love these cats. We all love these cats. And the best feral cat name that was on one of these invoices, Will Ferrell. (laughs) We're, we're getting, we're moving ahead there. We still need to make some sort of structural progress um, on trap, neuter, return and working with the wildlife advocates um, and bird advocates. We are fortunate in New Jersey that our New Jersey Autobahn Society, uh, the gentleman that runs that is a sophisticated guy, years ago had been opposed to TNR, is a great listener and he's a scientist minded guy. And when he looked at, hey, We instantly reduce the outdoor cat population by pulling the social cats, pulling the kittens, and then we build a a community of volunteers to help us address the issue. Because if it's not a life-affirming outcome for these cats, you're not gonna build community volunteerism. So in that regard, we are doing well. I wrote a document for a statewide organization that works on sustainability issues with municipalities. And we wrote a document about trap, neuter, vaccinate, manage. It was sort of a concession title. Um, Heaven forbid we keep one name. But anyway, and that document's been out there for municipalities to access. And just last week, I got a opposition letter from the American Bird Conservancy. So there's still, and that letter is going to end up in the hands of some of the municipalities who are then going to start to ask questions. So, you know, we still have work to do, but I think between the momentum, the incredible direction we've had, the partnerships between shelters, the areas that are really helping us show how they've done it, how they've made their progress, how, and then sharing it with the rest of us. We're going to get there and we're getting there so much more quickly than I saw coming.
1: If you like the Community Cats podcast and would like to help promote community cats in your state, then we need you. We're looking for a couple of people from each state to be Community Cats ambassadors. What do you get by being an ambassador? You'll be mailed a promo kit of items to use to help promote the show at any event that you attend in your state. If you don't attend many events, hey, that's okay too. Do you have a network of people that love Community Cats? You can help with emailing groups in your state to let them know about the CCP and offer them the benefit of Community Cat swag. The more we can spread the word about the show, the more we can do to help cats across the country. Please email stacy, S-T-A-C-Y, at communitycatspodcast.com if you'd like to represent your state. Thank you. The Community Cats Podcast is now getting over 3,000 downloads a month. The word is spreading, and we have a fast growing listener support base. Would your business want to be a sponsor of the show and help us to continue our programs? To find out more details, please go to www.communitycatspodcast.com slash sponsor. Once the tide starts going out, the momentum just keeps pulling it. We're running close on time, but there's one other program I really, really would like to find out greater details on, and you've touched upon it a bit, Heather, is your feline pipeline. Is that a actual official program that you get trained in and you understand about this moving of cats and kittens from one area of the country to another? Is this a particularly official program?
2: No, in that we launched it in response to knowing about the capacity up in New England. We are helping sort of develop the best ways to transport cats. Transporting cats is very different than transporting dogs. Not just in the cats themselves. We know stressed cats or sick cats. A lot of extra precautions to reduce, you know, upper respiratory risks. We also find that our partners can give us less notice about their ability and capacity. So, for example, when St. Hubert says to another shelter in the South, you know, we can help you with dogs, we'll take this many every three weeks, right? We can commit to numbers. We have a really good idea on that. Our partners in New England are able to do that with dogs, but they're not able to do that as well with cats. So it it makes it a logistical challenge to say to our partners across New Jersey, because we pull in cats here from overcrowded shelters across New Jersey. And we treat them for ringworm or upper respiratory. We get them all the vaccines required by the destination shelters. And it's hard to make commitments because people can't make commitments to us. So we're we're figuring all this out. We are sort of trailblazing in that. And our destination shelters in New England tell us, you know, they, they love our partnership because we understand what it's like to be a destination shelter, meaning we've been pulling dogs from other states for years. So we know the importance of vaccination protocols, paperwork. We know what it's like to be on the receiving end. And so we make sure everything is as good as we can. And we can always do better at everything. We try every day. Uh, But we really try to do a great job of getting uh, these cats up so that they can be moved as quickly as possible, adopted into new homes, and these groups can come back for more cats. So we do have the the name Feline Pipeline. We have an adorable little logo for it. We're very appreciative that the Petco Foundation helped with some support last year for the program. We helped move, you know, around 500 cats last year. Our, Our ambition is much higher and we're going to just keep working at it.
1: If uh, folks are interested in finding out more about St. Hubert's or any of the programs, I'm thinking that groups would be interested in finding out uh, about how to set up a pet retention hotline How would they reach out to you? We
2: would love to share if someone is a a municipal shelter or 501c3 or a rescue. We share our materials with anyone, and Tara would be happy to help anyone who's looking to start this with information. If there's anything she needs from me, she knows where to reach me or walk over and find me. So we're always happy to share our materials. We welcome, you know, we'll send them to them in a file they can edit and make their own versus a PDF. As far as our helpline or finding out about St. Hubert's, our website was beautifully redone to be a mobile-friendly website last summer by one of our 17-year-old phenom young summer employee ex-youth volunteer, and that is www.sthu. B-E-R-T-S dot org. So S-T-Huberts dot org. And like a lot of nonprofits, we're we're putting up a lot of great updates on our social media more than we necessarily do our website. But our website does have a special section on the helpline. So it's St.Huberts dot org slash pet helpline. And there's a lot of material out there. And then Tara, if you call that number, you will get Tara as well.
0: Yes, there's multiple ways to contact me directly that are on the backslash Pet Helpline webpage. There's email, there's phone, there's Facebook, there's all kinds of ways to reach us. And I'd be more than happy to talk to anybody that wants to do any aspect of retention work.
2: Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners today? I just would love for groups and individuals to know that the knowledge that ninety over 90% of indoor cats are found within three to five houses of their home. The way to look for a cat, look yourself under your neighbor's deck, your neighbor's porch, their shed. Uh, Don't just ask if they'll keep their eye out. Those simple tips lead to the recovery of so many cats. And Those of us who run animal control agencies, we answer our phones live, you know, every day of the year. We're only closed two days of the year. One of them is Christmas and we deliver pets by Santa Claus. So we keep pretty busy here. And so our phones are going all day and it's really a challenge to deliver information at the level we want, which is why we created the helpline. But it can be done. We have a lot of the boilerplate flyers and things that can be emailed out. Tara would be happy to share them. But if people just Learn some of these tips, and we we like the keep the kiss principle around here. Keep it simple, stupid. Um, just short bullet point information so people can digest it. A few tips. And if everyone would just look up what those are, they can really help people find a lot of the cats that are out there displaced from their people, and they hunker down. They don't come running out. And keeping up hope. Um, there's a lot of grief avoidance. And it is so stressful to think your cat is out there and they could be hurt or they could be suffering. And so sometimes that causes people to give up prematurely because they're avoiding that feeling of grief and stress, fusing hope. Give people hope, give them good information, and we can all help a lot more people get their kitties back.
1: Well, I want to thank you both uh, for agreeing to be a guest on my show. And we just have so much information. I really hope that you'd be willing to be on the show in the future. Oh, we'd
0: love it. Want to learn more about grants? Register for Grants 101, a Community Cats podcast webinar, on March 30th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Learn the ins and outs of writing grants, how to track them, and how to do follow-up reports. This is a perfect educational opportunity for a small organization looking to develop a strategic grant writing program as a fundraiser. Go to communitycatspodcast.com and click the link on the homepage to register. After registering, you'll receive a confirmation email containing information about joining the webinar. That's Grants 101, a Community Cats podcast webinar on March 30th at 2 p.m.